Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 39, or 39 and a half maybe, or maybe episode 40. Um, my name is Arvin, joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com, Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. So what episode do we label this? Because we did record last week, but because we are, um, what's the polite way to say this, incompetent, uh, <laughs> it didn't reach the light of day. You know what? I think we actually treat it as if that episode was like a real one, and then mm-hmm. we make it like the lost episode. And we just keep alluding to things that we said on that episode that were really good, but we never quite say what happened on it. Yeah. And we turn I mean, it into like this mythical thing. It was one of our better episodes, in my opinion. I think it was one of our best episodes. I think we said things that were very insightful that sadly are now lost to history. Yeah. But I'm going to make up that I predicted a lot of things that happened like, well, I mean, as I, they go I think on. I was pretty skeptical of your claim that Andreas Janssen would score a hat trick with five, three five-hole goals on Calvin Pickard in the first period. Of the Hockey Night in Canada game, but, I mean, you can't argue with the results. I was pretty clairvoyant. Yeah, you know, you look at the numbers and you start seeing patterns. That's what happened with me. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I feel really good about that one. (laughs) (laughs) So, speaking of looking at numbers and finding patterns, um, this episode we're going to play a kind of a game of read or fake. So, Fulman and I have each prepared three kind of Leafs or maybe league-based trends that we have noticed. Mostly Leafs, um, because Leafs and the league are the same thing, really. And we're going to discuss whether they are real or whether they are fake, whether we expect them to continue or whether we think they are going to die down. And we're going to try our best to not be super boring and be like, well, it could continue, but it also could be go back to normal. We're going to try and take some actual stands here. Isn't that right? I know. And believe me, that's terrifying for me to actually have to assert things with no qualifiers. But yeah, we're, we're, we're normally like quite dragarian in nature. <laughs> right like something could happen yeah but it also couldn't on the one hand on the other hand on the third hand so yeah exactly but we're gonna be forward and confident today this is gonna be the bold takes podcast exactly so So here's my first one fullman real or fake kasperi kapanen is a first line nhl winger real as hell i think so too so just to establish that kapanen has been a first line winger uh this year he is currently 40-something, 40th exactly, in 5v5 points. He's done this um, with an elevated shooting percentage, but it's not that much higher than his expected goals. If you regress like his actual goals as to what his expected would be, right, and you just say he, instead of performing, instead of converting at an above-average rate, he converts at an exactly average rate, he goes down all the way to 50th in even-strength points. Still very comfortably a first-niner, and we've talked about this a couple times, but expected goals is going to underrate Kapanen because of the amount of odd man rushes he creates. He has been really, really good to start the year. Um, He's creating chances at a first-line rate. He's scoring at not even just a first-line rate, a pretty close to elite rate. His point scoring is phenomenal. His um, play driving has been notably above average, not elite, but quite good, especially when you adjust for teammates and that sort of thing. He has been unequivocally a first-line caliber player over the first 23, 24 games of the year. And you think it'll continue as well? I do. I've been really impressed with him, both numbers, as you've described, and the eye test. I mean, I'm a sucker for a guy who can skate and who can play at a level to keep up with his skating even a little bit, and Cappy's been doing that. So, very impressed with him. I mean, just to give you, like, an idea of the company he's keeping, he is the same amount of uh, 5v5 points as Patrick Kane, as Johnny Gaudreau, as Leon Dreisaitl, as Matthew Kachuk as Philip Forsberg. Like, he's 
more than Philip Forsberg, actually. And he plays less minutes than most of these players and with less talented offensive players, right? Like, Nassim Kadri is a very, very good player, but he's not an elite center the way that, um, say, Patrice Bergeron is. Right? Yeah. Um, he has, it's been really, really impressive what he's done. And the Leafs have potentially three first-line right-wingers on their roster as soon as William Nylander comes back. That's an absolutely terrifying um, you know, prospect if you're other teams, right? Because they could line up each one of them with a star or at least very good center. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 85% of the game, you're, you have to face a really tough dynamic duo. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting to think about that. The other thing that I note about Cappy is that he's really established himself not only 5v5, but 4v5. Yeah. Um, to a huge degree, and in a way that a lot of those other players don't necessarily do so. I mean, I'm thinking Bergeron and Marchand are like the classic example of guys who are dominant in every game state. But Cappy's really staken his claim to being kind of a complete player. He's really exciting. And he's also, he's a type of player, I think sometimes um, penalty killing is, is overrated for some mm-hmm. players, where I don't think they're actually providing a whole lot else. Like, they, they play on the penalty kill, but they're not incredible on it or anything like that. I mean, I feel like so many times, you know, someone will float like, oh, we should trade this depth player. And fans will be like, oh, no, he's important for the penalty kill. And it's yeah. true, like, maybe... 40% of the time. <laughs> like, I don't think penalty killing is that challenging that, like, you know, it's impossible to find another guy who's good at that. Mm-hmm. Kapanen seems like one of those rare guys who actually has a notable 4v5 impact. His shot numbers at 4v5 are, are quite good. And you have to be careful with this because um, a lot of the typical methods of analysis that we use in hockey kind of assume that over, over large samples, uh, the ways in which you start your shifts tend to even out and competition tends to uh, exist in a pretty small band. That's not really true of playing shorthanded. If you start a shorthanded shift or if you start, if you're like the penalty kill one unit, you're first off, you're up against power play ones, which are really, really, really disproportionately better than power play twos. And you're also always taking a defensive zone face off. And if you lose that face off, then you're, kind of uh, boned because then the other team has their setup. Whereas if you're a, pa- a penalty kill too, you literally only come on when the puck has already left the zone because otherwise you the, uh, your first unit penalty kill doesn't get the chance to change. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful and adjust for that. But when, when you do so and when you kind of look a bit more carefully and Ian Tullock had a good article at The Athletic that did this, Kapanen looks like a really, really solid penalty kill and one who actually makes a difference. And there's been times where I've noticed that, like, for example... Um, in, in the game against, uh, not Philadelphia, but the one before that. Oh my god, I'm getting old. I can't even remember who he faced. <laughs> uh, Philadelphia, and then the previous night was Columbus. Columbus, yes. So, um, in, in that game, or maybe the game before, I, I noticed that... So, Connor Brown was on, uh, on the penalty kill, and he actually made a nice play um, to close in on the blue liner and block a pass, right? And, and I, I, he got the puck with kind of pretty much at a standstill with that defenseman, and he just sent it down the ice. And that's a play that 95% of players just send down the ice. Mm-hmm. And you don't think about it twice. And I was thinking, if Kapanen had that puck, or if Mitch Marner had that puck, they're not sending it down the ice, they're skating with it. Mm-hmm. And they prob- they might create a chance, they definitely kill more time. Yeah, like, I think we're really seeing an aggressive penalty kill in a way, and Zach Hyman does a bit of this too. But, mm-hmm. you, you know, much as I love him, he doesn't have anywhere near Kasperi Kapanen's finish. Yeah. Uh, no pun intended, haha. But... 
having those guys who can actually just run it back the other way, one, kill 25 seconds, but two, really, really put the fear of God into uh, an opposing defense group that if you make a mistake at the blue line, uh, we can quick strike back at you. Uh, I, I think that that has a lot of salutary benefits on your penalty killing. Um, I, I, I've said this before. I worry I fall in love too much with shorthanded threats, but who cares? Kapanen is dope. <laughs> he he really, really is. He is a lot of fun to watch. Like I'm, it, it, It's another another guy who's just super, super enjoyable to watch him play hockey. The Leafs have a ton of those guys, mostly at center and at right wing at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's really... We are, I would say, comfortably... Uh, the best combined center and right wing team in the NHL went healthy, but uh, yeah, that's a good thing to be. Yeah. I, I have to admit that after a couple of years where I've gradually been mellowing, I'm now officially okay with the Phil Kessel trade. I've come around, and <laughs> Kapanen has made me fall in love with it again. Yeah, so. I mean, a, a huge part of that trade was really okay. What can Kapanen become? Right, he was the only piece of that puzzle that had significant upside obviously we use the first round pick as part of the package to get freddie and we'll talk about him soon mm-hmm. um but captain was kind of if there's any part of the of the trade that's going to look much better three years down the road than it did on the day of the trade it was going to be him and i think he's blossomed quite well yeah yeah he's uh been really impressive to us the, the fact is also and this is just kind of an aside but i really wanted uh derek pouliot as the defenseman in that trade. As opposed uh, to Scott Harrington. As opposed to Scott Harrington. Uh, Scott Harrington has not turned into anything, as pretty much everyone knew. But neither has Derek Pouliot, as it turns out. So Her- Harrington played uh, on Columbus's like third pair uh, in one of the games we, we faced them recently. We, yeah, we he's the seventh defenseman. For Kirby Reichel. Yeah, which, you know. I guess you can say that that trade sort of didn't work out. like, But it doesn't I mean, matter. He's pure depth. Yeah. Like the Leafs need another third pairing left left-handed defenseman. <laughs> yeah, we have about eight of those. Yeah, uh, I mean even Cali Rosen, who's currently toiling away in the AHL, people are now saying like, keep an eye on him, which does my heart good because I like him. But yeah, so by and large, Kessel trade, okay. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, with so this might be sacrilegious, but like when you factor in quite how bad or just how bad Phil is defensively, it's not mm-hmm. unreasonable to me that Kaplan could have a similar, like, a peak year, which has similar value to the years that Phil would be providing right now. Really? That's bold. Now, granted... Okay, so here's the thing about Phil Castle. I think that it's clear at this point, and we maybe denied it a little bit, because we blamed a lot of his defensive numbers on Randy Carlisle. And we had some justification in doing that because Randy Carlisle is a disgustingly bad defensive coach. But Phil Kessel is an elite offensive right winger, like all-timer and just useless in the defensive zone. <laughs> like he doesn't achieve anything. I don't know that I'm quite at the point where I think winger defense generally matters that much. But Cappy is unequivocally better in his own zone. I think that's yeah. fair to say. No, Phil is... I love the guy, and I definitely, like, when he was with the Leafs, I definitely probably overlooked his defensive flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, focusing on the Leafs, on, on Phil's defensive flaws on that Leafs team was still, I maintain, like, very stupid because he was, you know, we had 25 players on the team. He was 25th in terms of which one of these guys is a problem. Yeah. 
right? Like, yeah, sure, whatever. He sucked defensively. He, the, the bigger issue was, you know, Tyler Bozak is our number one center. Our top pairing was like Dion Phaneuf and... Uh, was it, no, Keith Ollie was before that time, I think. Yeah, but, yeah. man. <laughs> I mean, there, there, were, there was a time where I'm like, you know what, Carl Gardeson's unironically, like, yeah, he, he, you can play him on your top pair. Oh, man, I was in love with Carl Gunnarsson, too. I was, like, real about Carl Gunnarsson being a really good player. Because yeah. I was so skewed uh, in, in terms of what counted as defense. We've mentioned this before, but, like, watching a bad team warps your mind. Because oh, yeah. you forget what good players look like. And you forget that, like, in order to be an above-average team, you need to not just have, like, someone who can play on in a certain role, but who is overqualified for that role. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, Nazem Kadri doesn't provide you value above an average team if he's your number one center yeah if he's your third line center he is like by far the third best or the best third line center in the league or yeah. he's up there maybe like i don't know does any does any, any team have anyone close to him on the third line for centers i i mean Derek brassard in theory but he hasn't really been delivering and yeah the, the jets had stastny at 3c last year but he left so i i would say it's Kadri pretty clearly mm-hmm. so yeah this is the thing is for all the players that we, like, talked ourselves into over those years, almost none of them were on the level of Kasperi Kapanen. And we're talking about him as, like, oh, man, he's going to give us a really all overqualified third line pretty soon. <laughs> you know? Um, it is kind of blessed to have that sort of depth and excitement in their lineup. So, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we're both in agreement that, like, we think Kasperi Kapanen just, he is a first-line right-winger at this point. Like, he is one of the... 30 or so best right-wingers in the league. Yeah, he, he's up there. I'm, yeah. When you when you tone it down to right-wing, I get a little uneasy, but I'll say this. I think he's one of the 90 best forwards. So. Okay, yeah, right-wing's yeah. a particularly deep position. I mean, it, it's it's always interesting. Like, left-wing is just such a weak position, league-wide. Mm-hmm. Relatively, like, relative to right-wing. Yeah, contrasting with the defense... Where yeah. right defense is way thinner. But anyway, life is weird. Yeah. So, my first topic for this is real or fake? Morgan Riley is going to win the Norris Trophy. I say fake. I say real. Now, I'm going to make a really weird argument about why this is real. Mm-hmm. So, bear with me a little bit here. So, Morgan Riley, I think everyone knows, has had a real hot start to the year. He's sitting on 27 points, which is tied for the league lead for defenseman with Tom Chabot of the Ottawa Senators. And he's had a very good year in plus minus. And you may think, but Fuleman, why are you bringing up plus minus? We live in the year of our Lord 2018. Stay with me. And so he's been impressive to most people. And the result was that NHL.com picked him as their leader at the quarter mark of the season to win the Norris. Uh, they had him first over John Carlson, which is another kind of interesting choice. But they had him as the comfortable leader going into the clubhouse for uh, for the quarter mark. So the thing about Morgan Riley is right now he's shooting an insane percentage. He's shooting a lot more than he used to, and all the pucks are going in for him. His PDO is through the roof. He's not going to sustain this because you know if he did he would be like a 90 point defenseman and those almost don't exist outside of Eric Carlson and the plus minus thing is mostly bounces 
uh, Morgan Riley's underlying numbers in terms of shot attempts are not that great. He's like very slightly below water in uh, in Corsi, and he's actually a little farther below water in expected goals according to Corsica, which is not that encouraging. And all of this stuff suggests that he's primed for regression from his lofty perch right now. You might say, why am I saying that he's going to win the Norris? Well, three things, basically. One, Morgan Riley is going to keep playing on a power play unit that, once it gets Austin Matthews back, I think is going to be top three in the NHL. So I think he's going to keep getting points, not at the rate that he has been, but he'll keep getting points just by benefit of he plays next to Mitch Marner and he will pass to him. Uh, I think another thing that's going to benefit him is that his plus minus has a decent chance of turning out okay, not because I think that it's that meaningful or that he's really providing that much added value, but because he's jumped out to such a head start in that number and he plays for a good team. And third, he plays in Toronto. And Toronto is the media capital of the NHL. And if this Leafs team is really good and it contends for a division title, despite having missed Nylander for two months and Matthews for one and all this sort of stuff, I think people are going to really want to jump into a narrative of someone on the defense made the defense better because the talk going into the year was just the defense is so bad, they won't really be able to contend. So there's a very comfortable storyline of Morgan Rowley has finally established himself defensively. Look at his plus minus. And for evidence of this argument, I submit the NHL.com post, which said this, basically, uh, that his plus minus is jumping up uh, this year. And that's kind of an implied uh, proof that he's way better defensively. This was the quote. Rowley was minus four last season and minus 13 or worse in each of his previous four seasons. This season, he's plus seven. Uh, he's also tied for first in game-winning goals two and first in overtime goals two among defensemen. Again, this is why it's such a like specific question to say he's going to win the Norris, because I'm not saying he should, but I'm saying that I think Riley is legit a favorite to win that trophy this year, because this is the way that people are going to look at it. That's a compelling argument, mm. even if it's an argument that is based on the stupidity of <laughs> NHL writers. Yep. <laughs> I think what prevents me from getting fully on board with it is just the fact that once he does slow down, and I think you and I both agree that he will, at least in terms of point scoring, mm-hmm. there isn't as much to hang your hat on. Like he'll, he'll need to still be good in terms of point scoring like he'll still need to score if he scores at his 50 his regular 50 point pace from mm-hmm. here on out that would give him what like probably 60 something points right mm-hmm. 60 or 70 yeah um which is very very good of course it's unbelievably good but i think there are there are other defensemen who will be similar enough and then they won't have the defensive concerns and he is super reliant on his plus minus staying good and like continuing to get the bounces and he has a decent shot, too, especially because he's going to keep playing with guys like Austin Matthews when he comes back and John Tavares. Mm-hmm. Forwards who can outshoot um, their expected goals, and Riley will be the beneficiary of that to some degree. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just... I, I don't quite buy I think I think I think guys like John Carlson and, say, like, Victor Hedman are, are going to... And Brent Burns, even, are going to 
throughout the course of the year kind of catch up on him in some respect as his points start sort of start to come down. I think you have a point there, and yet I don't think it's quite going to happen that way just because I think there is a narrative drive to give Morgan Riley this award. See, like, I, I'm I, actually convinced that that's going to push him over the top in a close race. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but I think he's going to be competitive on points. He's going to be passable in plus minus. And there's going to be such a push to say, like, he has stabilized that defense group. And look, that's why the Leafs are doing well. You can't do well without good defensemen in the NHL, right? <laughs> it's like, well, it helps if you have, like, maybe the best forward group. But I think that there's going to be a push to get him the trophy. I think we all agree, look, Morgan Riley is a genuinely excellent number one defenseman. Uh, a lot of things about him stand out. He's a great athlete. He he has some vision. He plays very aggressively along the blue line. I do actually think, and I've been seeing this more and more, this is very eye-testy, but he's almost the ideal guy to have playing the point on the 1-3-1 one, one power play because he's so rangy and athletic that he can kind of hunt down pucks to hold the blue line really, really well because um, he's so mobile. Uh, defensively, you know, I think he kind of is what he is at this point. He's a great glass cannon defenseman. I think you can still pretty fairly argue he's our best defenseman. But, yeah, he's not like an all-around player on the caliber of Victor Hedman, for example. So, yeah. Yeah. I I think, I do think the media is overrating him a little. I think he's been very, very good. Yeah. But as you said, like the, the, the fact that his underlying numbers, like his Corsi 4 percentage and expected goals percentage is below 50, um, that should hurt him in these sorts of things. Not necessarily because voters pay attention to that, but it suggests to me that like his plus minus is more likely to come down than go up. Yeah. Um, I think that's certainly fair. And I think that kind of the deficit of being a guy who gets a lot of power play usage on these teams is it sets up your plus minus to go down because your goals for don't count mm-hmm. and your short-term goals against too, which is why you see the phenomenon of guys who are used on in defensive roles on offensive teams tending to do well. Like Ron Hainsey is now mm-hmm. dominating in plus minus, which is hilarious, but that's kind of how it's set up. So I think there's some truth in that, but I think that's also true of a lot of his competition. I mean, yeah. certainly John Carlson and Brent Burns. So, yeah. One thing we'll that see. I think will help him is that, like, his partner, with all due respect to Ron Hainsey, is, like, clearly overmatched, right? <laughs> so he'll get credit yeah. for being like, hey, like, he's clearly not being carried by his partner, right? So it, everything that's happening on this line that's good is tied to Riley, which is, you know, not that much of an exaggeration. Yeah. So, so. I mean, I, you know what? I, I can see it happening. It, it would it would be kind of funny if like the first leaf to win a major individual award in like however long is Riley winning an undeserved Norse. Yeah, I would enjoy that immensely because it will make a lot of people mad. And let's be honest, they'll kind of have a point. But what? <laughs> yeah, no, they'll hundred percent have a point. Yeah. Okay, so should I go on to my next one? Yeah, absolutely. Travis Dermott is our second best defenseman. Mm. <laughs> I said I would take firm stances here. 
so I'm going to say fake for now. Okay, so I'm sure you don't need me to, to tell you this, but like basically Travis Dermott has fucked up everyone playing in his third pair role. His uh, shot share numbers are ridiculous. His expected goals numbers are ridiculous. His individual offense hasn't shown up. Part of that is poor puck luck. Part of that is he's playing mostly with bottom six forwards and Igor Oshiganov, who are none of whom are really offensive dynamos. But he's clearly doing the right things to push the puck in the right direction. He's clearly the driver of that pairing, just visually and also, um, you know, he has a history of doing this, even with Roman Polak last year. He, he is being used in a very sheltered role. There is no doubt about that. But his numbers are so good that even when you, like, mentally depress them by a lot, you get a really, really strong defenseman out of it. And I also think that Jake Gardner has kind of maybe taken a subtle step back. Uh, mm. Again, like last year, his numbers with Nikita Zaitsev aren't great. There, it remains to be seen whether this is Gardner slowing down or is just his fit with Zaitsev being particularly poor. Mm-hmm. But basically, despite having not having been played in a high-end role, I think Dermot might get similar results to Gardner in if he was given that sort of usage. There isn't a lot... There isn't a firm way to test this besides actually seeing it play out, right? Because this is kind of, it's a counterfactual. It's like, oh, if we put him in the situation that we haven't seen him uh, be in, he would do well. And you can't prove him right and you can't prove me wrong. Yeah. Right? We're just debating like varying degrees of likelihood. And Babcock is slowly increasing Dermot's load. Um, probably not fast enough in the eyes of many fans. And I, I actually understand the fans' frustration here because... We've seen Hainsey and Zaitsev against good teams, and like Boston did in the playoffs, they're going to get targeted, and their weaknesses are going to be magnified. Dermot is the one in-season hope of that changing. And the Leafs are reasonably assured to be a playoff team. You should experiment, right? You should try some stuff. There, there's valid reasons for Babcock to want to take more time to do so, right? Not just... Uh, mm. For Dermot's sake, but managing the locker room and managing expectations and all that sort of thing, you know, uh, it's not, it's hard to wake up one day and say, okay, uh, I know we've been winning and both Hainsey and Zaitsev have good plus minuses, which probably actually matters to coaches and to players, mm-hmm. right, in terms of giving them a reason to demote or promote someone. But yeah, even though you guys have been doing well by goals, we're going to put Dermot there. Like, it, it, you could do it, and I think some coaches would, but... That's not really Babcock style, especially given that he really likes both Dermot, sorry, both Hainsey and Zaitsev. Yeah. But, I, sorry, I think anyways. that it's fair to say that Babcock does adapt. He does change, but he like, he's very careful. Like, it, it took him a while to kind of recognize the decline of Leo Komarov last year, for example. But he did sort of move in that direction as time went on. So... I, you know, I, I think we are seeing it, but you're right. It's going to be slower than most fans want. So what what gives you pause that Dermot isn't quite our second best defenseman yet? Or is it more just respect for Jake Gardner and everything he's done? Respect for Jake Gardner is a big part of it. A huge part of it is usage. Um, in terms of time against, like, top forward lines, Jake Gardner has an above-average amount. Uh Travis Dermott has a way lower amount 
of time against top lines. And we're still in like year 15 of the how much does quality of competition matter wars. But I think that that does have an impact. And I think it can be very significant. The other thing is that I've just like, I don't buy Nikita Zaitsev at all anymore. And, mm-hmm. and I'm convinced that he's really a bit of a lead balloon in terms of uh, his play with the puck being so poor. I don't know what to tell you uh, at, at this point. I don't think that he's really playable in a top four role, at least not right now until he changes things. So with those things together, I think, okay, if you played Travis Dermott in Jake Gardner's job um, with Nikita Zaitsev, I am convinced that his results would be a lot worse. And if you gave Jake Gardner third pair minutes with a even passably competent defenseman, like, I, I think Ozeganov is certainly a fine number six. I think Jake Gardner would put up silly Corsi numbers because he's done things like that in the past with, you know, guys like Connor Carrick. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a certain amount of caution there just because I think the usage effects are potentially very strong. All of that said, Dermot has definitely, and there's no argument here, been really impressive in his role. And yeah. I think that he's making a clear case that... He, he needs to move up, and we need to find out if he can do what Jake Gardner does um, or do it better. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I, I'm. this is like me being tentative. So right now I'm still going to say Dermot is number three. But I think that certainly that has a strong prospect of changing. My, my counter to, to the points you made, which, which are valid, like to be clear, Dermot's usage is much closer to Ojaganov's or Morinson's than it is to any of Zaitsev, Gardner, Riley, or Hainsey. Mm-hmm. Much closer to the former group than the latter. Not even close. But he is also playing with like pretty mediocre teammates, right? Yes, mediocre teammates who put up good shot results against soft competition. Which yeah. I think, you know, one of the most impressive things about Dermot is that he's dominating on the shot clock. Yeah, but, he, he, he's yeah. spending a lot of time with the third and fourth lines, um, which have been pretty good in terms of, in terms of shot share partially because probably they've been playing with Dermot, right? Um, yeah. Although I, I, I would argue that there are a lot of guys in, in the Leafs' bottom six who are probably, like, middle six players on an average team, right? Like, I think Tyler Ennis is a middle six player on an average team. I think yeah, Josh Lebo is in and around that area. I think Connor Brown's in and around that area. Janssen had a poor start, but, like, I think in, on talent, he can be in that sort of group as well. So I think that group is weak in terms of, like, hands and like ability to score and beat defenses but they're not bad players for for death roles really I th- they're probably better than most of the third and fourth lines they play yeah. even in the least defe- uh, depleted state yeah i i think that's fair and so i think that there's like a rolling effect from that where it's like if our depth is beating their depth uh that has a magnifying effect from also playing an overqualified third pair defenseman so I- i'm just this may be just caution from being burned too many times before where, I, you know, I used to fall in love with the third-pair defenseman who put up great shooting stats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, Connor Carrick is like a great example of that. And I just don't know that it's there, even though there are some people who will still tell you to this day that it's really just a failure of coaches to appreciate him. But I, I don't see it. I didn't see it on the ice in his game the way that I do with Dermot. Yeah. So, I, mean, I, th- I think regarding yeah. like the eye of third pair shelter defenseman it kind of varies right yeah 
Yeah, and, and it's true. Um, so yeah, these are mostly just reasons to kind of wait and see from where I'm sitting, which I recognize is, again, not quite the point of the exercise, which is to like, take a firm stance. Mm-hmm. You can tell how like alien this is to my temperament to not hedge on stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I will say Jake Gardner has done a lot of stuff that maybe is not easy to appreciate. And even with his numbers not being that impressive in his role, I'm willing to cut him a lot of slack just because I think he's playing a, a really tough role right now. So I'm willing to give some space um, f- for that right now w- until Travis Dermott conclusively steps up a, a role. But I do think, you know, it's time to start making some moves, Mike, if you can do it. And he is doing it slowly, so I guess yeah. it's that. I also think one of the important things, why, one reason why it's so important to put Dermot in these roles now is so mm-hmm. that the Leafs can make a more informed decision about Jake Gardner in six months. Yeah, that's absolutely a huge factor. Because, again, Mike Babcock has actually said a bunch of times... You know, Jake Gardner's a better defenseman than people realize. He's he likes really Jake important. a lot, and it's, it's borne out in his usage. He's clearly yeah. Mike Babcock's number two defenseman. Yeah, or you can even make a case that he has two number one defensemen who he plays on separate pairings, mm-hmm. and he primarily uses Riley for the dynamite offensive role now. Mm-hmm. But he leans on Jake a lot, and he has said he kind of wants to extend him, like he's dropped a hint. And I've wondered... At times, is that an indication of the organization's thinking? Is that an indication of how Mike Babcock would like to push Kyle Dubas to behave? Like, he's kind of saying, extend this guy, I need him. Uh, So I think that that's all interesting in terms of coming to a conclusion. I think Jake Gardner probably will be priced out of our market, it pains me to say. Like, he'd have to want to stay here quite a bit and be willing to turn down some money to do so. So... Yeah, in terms of pursuing that, I do want to see if Travis Dermott can do his job. And yet, what we're probably going to end up seeing, even in the best-case scenario, is whether Travis Dermott can play right side with either him or Riley. Yeah. Um, so, we'll see. Yeah, because, I mean, I really want to know, is, is has Jake taken a step back? Is he, is he just, is he, has he moved from being kind of a borderline top-pair guy to being maybe an average second pair guy or is it just kind of the fit with Zaitsev and you know some some all-in-one kind of play driving stats in the last few years have they, they view Gardner as above average but not elite which is kind of surprising to me and I guess it suggests that his his usage uh is probably easier than people appreciated but yeah at the same time even if you think he is just a, a very like a, an above average second pairing guy that that's very good, on a t- especially on a team as uh, weak as the Leafs defensively. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, like, it, if, if he's come down from that, it, it it matters a lot, right? I'm I'm more willing to make a potentially iffy contract to a guy who is borderline top pair than a guy who is an average second-pairing guy. I'm actually looking up his um, RAPM right now, and he, yeah, he, he's comfortably above average uh, over the last three years. So that, that puts him at like kind of high end second pair, low end first pair yeah. range. But that's over the last three years. Over the last two, his numbers have been less stellar. Yeah. And I think that that's partly a function of like, if you play Jake Gardner as a second pairing defenseman who doesn't 
have to pay tough usage with a good partner, he's going to look like he belongs in your first pair. Mm -hmm. If you play Jake Gardner in tough usage with someone who is probably not qualified for the job, he's going to look like he's in a bit over his head. He's, I think, right on that borderline of like where a 2-3 defenseman sits. And it's exacerbated because he's such a strange player at times. He can look so brilliant, and he can look really iffy at times. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm i firmly on record that his net benefit is definitely positive. Oh, but unequivocally. Like, yeah, but like sometimes you're like, Jakey, what are you doing, man? And you can see why sometimes coaches, uh, and again, to his credit, Mike Babcock has been pretty unambiguous about this forever. But a lot of coaches would sort of think, Jakey, what are you doing, man? You know, like, look where you're passing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he, it is very tough to evaluate him uh, in terms of, like, where does he fit on a team? And I am really curious as to what the market exactly would be. I, like, I think he could get uh, $6 million a year plus mm-hmm. on the open market for sure. Uh, just because teams are going to say, like, look, especially if you want some guy who can play first unit power play time um, and you can play second pair of minutes, you know, he, he should be in demand for that. And if he, if he gets that, then that's going to be tough for us to compete with. But, you know, I think if you can get Jake for five and a half or something, you absolutely do it. So, yeah. To your point about him making stupid plays at the start of the second, he had the two dumbest icings I've seen in <laughs> such a long time. So like the Leafs win the opening face off. And yeah. like, so literally the puck just a scramble for like two seconds in center ice. The puck squirts out to Gardner. He is halfway between his own blue line and the red line. The, the players are like just scrambled in a big mess in front of him. No one is beyond either blue line, right? Everyone's in the neutral zone. And for some reason, Gardner just winds up and unleashes his best Roman Polak on, you know, release the Kraken <laughs> um, and just wires the puck at no one. And it just goes down for an icing. <laughs> And like there was, he was under no pressure. He literally could have just like skated backwards into his own zone, passed to his defenseman. He could have, you know, tried to pass to one of the forwards. He could have done so many things, but he literally just like hammered the puck at no one. <laughs> Do you think that he was thinking, you know, with the quality of the goaltending against? I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll get a goal this way. <laughs> <laughs> Like, maybe if it's going in, you know, might as well try and go five hole from 200 feet. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, I mean, he just, I was so confused. He's such a fascinating player. He has so much ability and strange decision-making at times. It is hard to understand, but, uh, that's the magic of Jake. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you're up next, right? For real or fake? I am. And so... I'm going to double up on the awards theme, which is Frederick Anderson will win the Vesna. Um, I think this is more likely than Riley winning the Norris, but I, stay, I say fake again because John Gibson is a thing. Yes. And once again, I will say real. And it will be sort of along the same lines as the John Gibson thing. Uh, not as the John Gibson thing, it's the Morgan Riley thing, but John Gibson is relevant. So Frederick Anderson has been awesome this season. I think... That's pretty obvious. The usual October slump uh, that we've endured didn't really happen. And then in November, he was lights out. Um, He's rocking a huge save percentage right now. 
In terms of goals saved above average, which tries to account for difficulty of shots against. And uh, like workload. And well. workload against. So it's trying to be like a kind of holistic measure of what's coming at you and then how much of that you're saving versus an average goalie. Uh, Frederick Anderson is sitting at third, very narrowly behind Pecorine, and still a fair bit behind John Gibson. That said, uh, again, at the quarter mark, NHL.com was saying Frederick Anderson is the frontrunner for the Vesna. I've already made my argument about how being in the Toronto media market, I think, makes you a little bit more competitive for this sort of thing, so I won't repeat it. But I think, one, despite goaltending being voodoo, uh, Freddie looks dialed in and he's played really well. And I think he's comfortable with a big workload, which I think is impressive. You know, if you go and you play 60, 65 games, which I still kind of feel like Freddie's going to end up doing, uh, and you dominate in those minutes, that's a little more impressive than a guy who plays less. I don't think it's really popularly understood how bad the Anaheim Ducks are coached by Randy Carlisle. This is what I would say. So John Gibson, his save percentage raw is like quite impressive, but it's lower than Freddie's. But what's happening is that his defense is leaking shots and chances against at a rate that is like hard to even comprehend. If you're someone who normally watches hockey, like they're really, really, really bad. And I think the fact that that is so severe in that direction, one, is probably going to hurt his overall numbers and make the team worse. But two, it's going to make it hard for people who just look at save percentage and, God help me, goals against, to really comprehend what a big lift John Gibson is providing. And so if you assume John Gibson is going to kind of get taken out of the running by that, after that, it's still kind of a crapshoot because goalies can go any which way but loose. But after that, I think Frederick Anderson will get a bit of a bump versus Rene just because I think everyone in the universe would agree Nashville has a better defense than we do. And then I think it's pretty definitely Freddie so far if he keeps playing like he has been playing. So I'm saying real insofar is it's realer right now than anything else. Like, I think that he's the favorite. For the year, obviously anything can happen. Anyone can go south for a month and then bye-bye Vesna. But he's really well-positioned, and he's looked solid as hell. Uh, I, I think that it can be a little easy to forget what an excruciating experience it was at times watching the Leafs goaltending, like even getting away from the years of like Vesa Toscala or whatever. But, you know, having hit and miss years with James Reimer or Jonathan Bernier thinking Nelson Mandela was a hockey player or something. Like, we would have so much nonsense around the goalie position. And Freddie's kind of wiped all that out, really. Like, he's just come in, set up, and been brilliant. So, that's huge for us. So, yeah, I'll say Freddie Anderson is real as a Vesna candidate. And Vesna favorite. Do you think there'll be some sort of... I don't know if backlash is the right word, but some sort of pushback against the idea that the Leafs have a Norris contender and a Vesna contender if they're not one of the three best teams in the league by the end of the year. Yes. And so I'm counting on the Leafs to do well. Like, this only works if the Leafs are doing well. And it kind of goes hand in hand, truth be told. Because and I think like they have to be like top three even, like or, or top five at the very worst. Yeah, uh, I'll say 
if they're not one two in the division, I think that there'll be some feeling that you know they're they're in sort of sort of tough there. Especially because I think it's not unreasonable for someone like Mitch Marner or John Tavares to get some heart consideration as well. Yeah, I'll. This is kind of getting into another who will cool off argument, but I think yeah. by the end of the year, I don't think either of those guys is going to be close to getting a heart. Okay. I think they're going to be very, very good, but I don't think that they're going to be finalists or anything like that. So yeah, I mean, Tavares is on pace for fifty goals. Yeah, no, he's really hot right now. I'm not gonna lie, and no one will be happier than me if he and mm-hmm. Mitchie keep that going. Yeah, um, I mean. They're they're ridiculous at this point. Like um, Tavares right now is second in the league in five v five points. Uh, Marner is first in the league in five v five primary points. Yeah, they've and then they obviously are part of an elite power play unit as well. Yeah, it, and they're doing a lot of damage. They're so hot right now. I just I don't really believe it. And so I think it'll be the same thing that happens, which is that if Connor McDavid can get the Oilers into the playoffs, he's immediately the favorite for the trophy. And then you have whatever Colorado's top line is doing. Like, right now, they're on fire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're destined to slow down a bit, but how much I can't say, because they are really good. Yeah. So, I think a lot of Isn't that... and then, I kind of want to see happen. What? Over the next, like, 10 years, I want McDavid to, like, unequivocally be the best player every single year, <laughs> but, like, win zero hearts because his team never makes the playoffs. That would bring me a lot of joy. And, and then, like, in, 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 like, 20 years, we'll look back. It's like, how did McDavid only win one MVP? <laughs> yeah, that'll be... He's, like, he's like third in points all time. <laughs> Has one MVP. <laughs> you know what would really be funny to me? And this isn't really in the realm of possibility, but it would be so good, is if the Isles make a surprise playoff appearance on the back of Matthew Barzal. Mm-hmm. And then he wins the heart, and so it's Hall and Barcel beating out McDavid for the heart trophy in consecutive years because his team is so bad. Yeah, uh, that would be pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, my life goal is really just for Peter Chiarelli to finally be run out of his job. So the media is finally turning against him, which is nice. Barely. Well, I mean, God, it took long enough. But, but even then, it's like kind of it's kind of like obtuse. It's like. You know, it's like, oh, McClellan was just a fall guy. The roster isn't good enough. But then they don't take the next step. It's like, who's responsible for the roster? It's, ah, who, who can say? <laughs> How did this come to pass? Surely this roster was provided by a machine or some sort of organic process. Nobody made any choices here. But, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, we'll see about that. But then, bringing it back around, Connor McDavid, I think, is going to probably... Bring them close to the playoffs just because the Pacific is so bad. And yeah. the Oilers, if they get decent goaltending from either Koskinen or if Talbot recovers, that should be okay to get them into a seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. the, the bar is so low. I mean, that, that's the thing. If you have two years of prime Connor McDavid and you don't make the playoffs in either one, like not only should you be fired, you should be barred from having a job, not just in hockey, but anywhere. <laughs> You, like, you shouldn't be employed again. No. Um, yeah, so, so, I mean, that's just really glaring. Uh, but bring that back to the Leafs, there is definitely a certain amount of, like, the rich getting too rich in terms of trophies. Like, they'll just say, okay, it can't. we can't give all the awards to one team because the implication is that each of these players is benefiting from having another superstar teammate. 
Yeah. And so I don't think... I recognize what I'm projecting here seems hilarious, but I think the team with the best forward group in the NHL will not have a forward win a major award. And yet I think their goaltender and their 1D will be in serious contention for the awards. And that's really just me making a comment on how silly the NHL awards are. Yeah. Like, I I think Freddie Anderson is legit a Vesna contender. I don't think Riley in a, you know, just world would really be winning the Norris, but whatever. Um, But yeah, I think that that's very much in the realm of possibility. And if it happens, it will be hilarious to me. It will be. I mean... With Freddie, it, it's always hard to say because he needs to keep up his performance, right? right? That's the thing. He's This has been one of the better stretches of his career. And he, he's had strong stretches throughout the season before. Mm-hmm. But they weren't at the start of the season, so his top-line numbers never looked this good. No. But, like, realistically, he's been an above-average but not elite goaltender for a while. Yeah. Or at least by, by the methods that we have. And the most likely outcome is that he kind of reverts to that. He's already banked you know, 20 games or so of being elite, which helps, but it's a long season, right? Like, at this time last year, Vasilevsky was a shoe-in. Yeah, it's true. Anything can happen, but I think that there is also a certain amount of... He's established himself at this point in the process, and if he doesn't throw it away, that's a benefit. Do you know what I mean? Like... If he doesn't have a sharp decline, like if he keeps putting up pretty solid numbers the rest of the way through the year, and yeah. no one really surges ahead and takes it from him, I think that it'll kind of sit with him that he was clearly the contender just because of a natural anchoring bias that goes on in the minds of the voters. Like if you have Freddie Anderson number one now, you would just as soon have him be number one at the end because you would like to have been right. Um, and I honestly believe that this kind of thinking consciously or not, uh, does play a role in awards voting. So we'll see. I'm, I'm actually doing like a lot of stuff on like my opinions of the cognitive biases of like awards voters <laughs> in the NHL. That's really what this is yeah. about. But yeah. So we'll see. I can see it happening, which is, I mean, it would be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, even just when, uh, when Austin won the Calder trophy, it was like, this is nice. It's nice to have uh, one of our players legit be recognized uh, as excellent as his position, because the truth is the Leafs had not won an individual award except the Lady Bing from Alex, from McGillney. Alex McGillney when he said he didn't want to go to the ceremony. Did he? I think he he didn't end up going. No, right? he said. Uh, he I, I think his quote was, "They would have to kidnap me to make me go there," because yeah. the Lady Bing was considered kind of effeminate. But uh, before that, the only individual skater award that the Leafs had won since 67 was Gilmore winning the Selkie in 93. So, like, it's a special yeah. thing for us to have an elite player at a position. God. McGillney was a badass. McGillney was dope, man. I love McGillney. Even if I think it's like, you should go and take the award and, like, be gentlemanly about it. And I actually appreciated him more because he wasn't, like, a penalty fiend. But he was such <laughs> a good player. <laughs> yeah, he, he was unbelievable. I mean... We've talked about it before, but like he should be in the hall. Oh yeah, hundred percent. If nothing else, for historical significance. Like, yeah, what a huge player. Anyway, yeah, I I could actually get rowdy about this <laughs> line of argument, but put yeah, McGillney no, in the I, hall. I have fame. strong opinions about Alex McGillney in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Another player who will probably end up in the Hall of Fame, Frederick Gauthier. <laughs> you know, I Reader was thinking fame. the other day, basically Alex <laughs> McGillney, same type of player, yeah. 
Same skill set. <laughs> you know, when, when Freddy just has that shot, just, just like Magoni, it's really reminiscent. And his skating, again, just like Magoni. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so, real or fake, Freddy Gautier is competent. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. But at the very precise standard of competent, I'm going to say real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm forced to say the same. So, Gautier has not been unbelievable this year. And actually, it, it's kind of funny that his line strung together, like, 12 straight low-event games where they were, like, 55% course or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they had one game where they got filled in, but it was so high event that it literally just sewered their numbers, so now they're actually below 50% Corsi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what happens when you're a low event. Yeah, I mean, that's but the price That line pay. is operating at, like, 50% uh, shot share, above 50% expected goals. Basically better than you could, and uh, basically better than you can ever expect a fourth line to be. Mm-hmm. They're actually, like, plus three or plus four in terms of goals. I don't think they've actually been on the ice for a goal against. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, like, that line has been not you know, setting the world on fire, but they have been competent, and that is more than I've ever expected out of Gautier. Now, I think... I think he is somehow the fourth most important thing on that line. Um, (laughs) On a line of three people. (laughs) I think his two wingers are more important than him, and I also think the fact that they play with Travis Dermott is more important than him. (laughs) You know, that's harsh, but that is also almost certainly true. Yeah, Um, but... I mean, he is putting up decent uh, <laughs> on-ice numbers. Again, we're, we're talking about a really low bar here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, it's it's real in that he, he's done it. I don't see it being unsustainable because he's going to have the same line mates. Yeah. Um, it, I guess that's a question of whether he'll be in the lineup after Matthews and Nylander come back. Yeah, and, you know, I don't think that it's really... I don't think that there's a really good case to keep him in there over Par Lindholm. And I think yeah. that that's how Mike Babcock will see it. But then he's probably going to stay up with the team. And if there's an injury or something, Freddy the Goat coming back in. So And also, like, it, it's possible that he shifts Lindholm to, like, third line left wing. Right? And then someone like Levo or Ennis kind of rotate in and out. And I think that's, that'd be unfair to both, of, both Levo and Ennis, who are... Much better than Freddie Gauthier. By a lot. But, I mean, the fact remains, we said again and again, we're like, Freddie Gauthier is not an NHL player. And now we've had to admit, Freddie Gauthier is barely an NHL player. Under some very particular circumstances with excellent line mates and uh, (laughs) controlled usage, Freddie Gauthier can put up Okay results. <laughs> yeah. It's like 12 qualifiers. <laughs> like, we almost want to tack on a maybe at the end of that. But here's the thing, and I think that this is really funny to me. I think Freddie Goche is going to finish his career with more games played than, like, mm-hmm. Mark Arcabello or Seth Griffith or whichever, mm-hmm. like, superstar AHL player that the nerds love that you want to name. It's going to be like Freddy Goche is now going to own us all. He's going to play like 200 plus games in his career because he's big and passably competent. And like, if the Leafs were to waive him now, uh, 
Do you have any doubt he would get claimed? I think he would get claimed, definitely. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I was actually thinking about this earlier today. I think he would get claimed, but at the same time, he has zero goals and two assists. And I think that still sort of matters. But all of the little ancillary factors are in Gauthier's favor, right? He's a center. He's big. He's Canadian. <laughs> he plays hard. He went, And by all accounts, he's like a great teammate and everyone loves he's him. He's a really and, nice guy. And he's a plus four. Um, which, uh, again, this is like the plus minus podcast for me. But, like, I think people are noticed that. And they're going to say, I don't need my fourth line center to score. I need my fourth line center to not get outscored. And the fact is, that's what he's done. Uh, and I will say this on, like, another note. Goshi has obviously been, like, trying really hard this time. Like, I've really noticed him kind of throwing himself in and pushing the play. Mm-hmm. And, like, really giving it 110%. And that is to his credit, and I think sometimes in a close race, especially for a depth role, guys who do that are not the worst thing to have in your organization. Like, I could almost see, oh my god, I, like, I, I'm selling out all my principles here, but I could almost see, like, even a team that wasn't very good, but that was high mm-hmm. in the waiver order, thinking, you know, we'll play him up a little bit in the lineup. Um, because we don't have anybody and we just want a guy who's good and works hard and is in the room and, you know, we'll play him at third line center. And then all you need is one little PDO bender or something and a 40 point season and you're Joe Colborn. All you need is to get lucky once. Now, granted, Gauthier's offense is so bad that I don't know. Yeah. Like, I think you're overselling his potential. Like, I can't imagine him ever getting... He, he might not get 40 points in his career. No, probably not. He has seven right now. But, okay, so let me specify what I'm saying here. I think he mm-hmm. could get usage on another team wildly incommensurate with his abilities. And I think in that circumstance, I don't know what would happen in terms of his offense. He is the least offensively capable forward who was not an enforcer that I've seen play for the Leafs for any extended stretch. It's either him or Jared Smithson, isn't it? Oh, God. I'd forgotten about Jared Smith. Oh, my Lord. Wow. Uh, that was traumatic. I didn't want to think about that. Anyway. But, uh, yeah. So, I don't know what would happen. But I just... I'm a little unmoored now. Like, I had this clear idea of what Freddie Goche is. And now it's all up in the air, you know? Like, I'm half expecting that in five years, suddenly he'll learn to shoot. And then Frederick Goche is winning the Selkie. And then I don't know what's going on, you know? I, I just... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to believe anymore about Freddie. But more prosaically, I, I think he's going to have like a decent-ish journeyman fringe NHLer career where he gets, you know, a couple contracts out of it. So, yeah, good for him. He's owned us all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he kind of has. He right? has. Freddie Goche has owned us. That's the bottom line of this podcast. We thought we, we knew what was up, and he's shown us that we did not. So... You know, that said, we were still, I think, right that he has zero offense, like two assists in yeah, 21 games. Yeah. Mm, that's bad. But. And it's also like his wingers are good shooters for mm-hmm. a four. Like his wingers are above average fourth liners. I'm wondering how many fourth lines in the NHL have better wingers than Levo and Ennis offensively. Yeah, it's not that many. Like no, Ennis in particular has, and Levo has been quite good too this year. Yeah. But like. Man, Ennis has 
some real shot generation. Ennis has moves. And like yeah. Ennis has skill and technique and stuff like that. Like it, it's a good reminder that actually this line might be like the most object lesson example of the little guy has to prove he can play and the big guy has to prove he can't. Because yeah. <laughs> Ennis is doing so much and then Freddie's like, "Well, I got my two assists." So <laughs> We're all, like, congratulating Freddie for his two assists. You know, um, Ennis has as many 5v5 points as Patrick Marlowe. Yeah, I, I did notice that. And that, hmm, isn't that a thinker? But, yeah. Uh, because if Matthews and Nylander come back, and we are still thinking they're going to this week, um, you have to open up two forward spots. And so I think Gauthier is probably one, but then you probably scratch a winger. Yeah. And, man, it would feel really unfair if it were Tyler Ennis. I have to say, I really think that he's done everything he can. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Levo or Goche. Levo and Goche, sorry. But we'll see. I, I feel bad for Levo, too. He's been good. I know. And, like, he's already set a career high in games played in the season. <laughs> uh, so he can't expect anything more now. No, are you... You played like, your 22 games, Josh. This has been the salad days of Josh Levo's life. Where it's like he's playing every night and it's like it's with Frederick Gauthier and it's the center. But he's getting into games. You know. Oh, man. I feel for him a lot, actually. But, you know. On the other hand, he's making like, what, 800 grand? So it can't be too bad. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, anyway. So uh, now that our credibility is in tatters from the the Gauthier debacle, uh, I'll go on to my real or fake. And it's the Buffalo Sabres are going to be a divisional seed in the Atlantic this year. I say fake, but they've banked so many points that they don't even need to be that good to get the third seed. Yep. I'm saying fake, but here's the thing. The Buffalo Sabres, if you look at their underlying numbers for the most part, are, I want to say, aggressively mediocre. They're, they're average. It, they're it's actually average. not far off from what we said. We said, like, it, we said we thought they would be a respectable bad team with the mm-hmm. potential to be, like, a playoff bubble team. And yeah. it turns out they're a bit better. They're basically a playoff bubble team. Yeah. Um, in terms of, like, true talent. But then the variance is taking them a bit higher, I think. Basically that. I have them pegged to be an 80-point team. They look closer <laughs> to maybe a 90-point team. And 90-point team is the definition of you're right on the line. Uh, right now... They're leading the division. Like, they're leading the league. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, they are leading the league. Uh, which is bananas. But they've won nine games in a row, so that's a good thing to have happen for your record. And so the 2-3-4 in the Atlantic are actually what I figured would be the 1-2-3. So it's Tampa, then Toronto, then Boston. But Buffalo is leading right now. Now, how are they doing it? Well, they have the best record in one-goal games in the NHL. So that... Goes a long way. Now, the Leafs have a really good record in one-goal games, too. And they're hotter right now than it looks like they should be. Like, if the Leafs were going to ride with this lineup for the rest of the year, I would be kind of sounding some alarm bells about its sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we're getting back Matthews and, again, hopefully Nylander imminently kind of me- means I'm saying, eh, don't worry about it too much. But... There's some potential for the variance to start going the other way on you in terms of one-goal games. And I think that's probably going to happen. But also, like, just looking at goal differential. Yeah. 
like the Leafs' goal differential was much higher than the Sabres. The Leafs and are I mean, a much better team than the Buffalo Sabres still. Yes. Um, I, the Sabres are they're kind of a one-line team that where that one line is like destroying. Yeah. Right. And, um, and like Jeff Skinner is like having the ride of his life. Mm. Uh, Did you hear that? Like, I think this got debunked, but people were like, "Oh yeah, um, Jeff Skinner is going to ask for like eight point five or nine mil." Yeah. And it's like, really? Like, I do not. Want, I don't. I don't want to pay him seven mil. No. He's a good player. He's a very good player, but he will be heading into his. He's going to be getting worse, not better, most likely. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I definitely don't want to pay for the guy after he's had a huge PDO bender. No, this is exactly the wrong time for a team to sign him to a contract and exactly the right time for him to want a team to sign him to a contract. Uh, I mean, I don't know what, like, as you say, we don't know how real any of that is. But, like, I would definitely be asking for a very high dollar amount right this instant and hoping the Sabres jump on it and lock me down. Mm. Uh, Unless I really wanted to just get the hell out of Buffalo, but I don't know. Um, But yeah, right now the Sabres are unsustainably hot. But the fact is the underlying numbers aren't awful. They're not a terrible team, you you know, uh, as we've been accustomed to them being year in, year out. They're firmly approaching respectability. You know, Carter Hutton has been good in net for them. And so the fact is, we can say, well, they're not going to keep this up to any stretch. But as you said, they've banked a lot of points. And so if you're betting, are the Sabres going to make the playoffs? I think the fair bet is now, yes. I think they'll do it as a wildcard team. But the Metro isn't that deep. Mm -hmm. And... If you can just be kind of okay the rest of the way, now that you've put up some margins, that should be enough to get you into the playoffs, which for Buffalo fans, I think they should be over the moon about. That's a huge step forward for a team that was long overdue to take a step forward. Yeah, absolutely. So even with me kind of saying, like, look, this nine-game winning streak is mostly a fluke, the fact that they're no longer awful is not a fluke. So... What they're pretending to be right now, fake. But being a lot better than they used to be, real. So, yeah. Oh, and also, I just want to add, Jack Eichel is the real deal. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Imagine Leaf Sabres' yeah. first-round series. Oh, my God. Oh, man. You know, the Leaf Sabres' rivalry is interesting because it's like... It doesn't have quite the same history to it or... I think the teams just really hate each other. They just hate each other. And the fan base is just really really don't like each other. Like, there's just so much venom. And as a result, so even though it's not like, the you know, the grand old matchup of Toronto-Montreal or like whatever it is we do with the Sens, um, it's just really mean-spirited. And so I think if they had a first round, it would be real nasty. And Nazem Kadri would I think we could lose that game, too. I think we could lose that series, too. Like, I think we'd be favorites, but... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I I would have us at, you know, what, 60-40? But, like, yeah. that's not that huge a margin. Because, um, you know, they have decent enough goaltending and they have a couple of game breakers. So, that'll do you. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'll be honest. I thought Buffalo was going to be only a bit better this year. And I thought that there was going to be some disappointment. Uh, because they were expecting to be a lot better. Again, they're not this, but, you know. There's a future that doesn't seem that far off where Buffalo firmly establishes itself as like a real deal in the Atlantic. 
Especially yeah. as I think Boston is going to start falling away. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, well, I, I'm just going to throw this in. I know that I've talked too much about the Ottawa Senators. Um, <laughs> it's bad. I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of how I've chosen to behave. But I can't resist pointing this out again. Update on Senators Gate. The Sens are, as you may know, currently playing out in Canada, and some of their attendance issues have been blamed on the insane inaccessibility of their arena for fans from Ottawa. So, there's been an ongoing development bid to uh, put the arena downtown in Ottawa, where it would be uh, easier to get to for most people and would hopefully help the team draw better as it moved into a new era. This makes a lot of sense for them to try to do it. Uh, the Leafs benefit a lot from having a premium location in the heart of downtown. All good. This is called the Le Breton Flats Project for the name of the place where they want to build the arena. In October, uh, some of Eugene Melnick's partners in the Le Breton Flats Project uh, wrote a letter to Gary Bettman saying... We are concerned about the way that Eugene Melnick is going about this. And we're really worried for the future of this project. We love the Senators. We love the idea. But he's kind of off the wall. And Bettman basically shoved them off. He said, look, Melnick runs the team. He's the owner. You deal with him. The bid has now fallen apart. Uh, and Eugene Melnick is suing his partners for $700 million. And by all accounts, what basically seems to have happened is... Eugene Melnick wanted control over the bid and the team still, but he didn't want to spend any money. And <laughs> when his partner said, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair, he said, go to hell. And now he's suing them for $700 million. And so this is just like a nice little step forward in the ongoing saga of the Senators where it's like, why is this happening? You know, why would you think that you could get away with this and the answer is of course because you're eugene melnick so i don't really have too much to add to this other than it's very funny to me and i want to see how this lawsuit goes and i think it's possible this will end with eugene melnick playing <laughs> paying for his partner's legal fees which would be really funny to me so that's just to add a little sunshine to your life a little senator's minute right there <laughs> i'm just uh, this whole thing is very funny I, every time you talk about melnick i'm I'm reminded of the time in an art article you called him broke Caligula. <laughs> and I, I, just, I just laugh at that <laughs> just, every single time. Just no money and no judgment and complete madness. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that aside. Oh, yeah. And one last thing. Rain or shine, by the next time we record a podcast, the William Nylander thing will be done. Yeah. One way or another, we're going to know. There was finally some really positive chatter last night saying that they are close. Um, I really hope so, because again, there's not much runway left here, but man, I really hope that it's borne out. And the rumor is that it's something like they're dancing around six years at 6.9 million, which on the one hand, I'm just so happy if this ends in a deal on the other, that's what we said four months ago, right? So like, what the <laughs> fuck guys, <laughs> come on anyway, but, uh, 
let's hope that it comes to an agreement and then by the next time we're swooning over how good William Nylander's new debut was. So Yeah. I mean if it if um if they sign that sort of deal, like hundred percent the article that we're going to write is just going to be like, You fucking moron. <laughs> you you made us wait two months. Yeah, for like the deal that everyone knew made sense. Anyway. Oh. But I- it will be outweighed by my joy at having him back, even if it's yes. the most, like, grudging joy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the incredible thing that we, the least could potentially have is, like, we've seen how good the Tavares-Marner combination has been, mm-hmm. aided by Zach Hyman, of course. Uh, yeah, um, I-, I would say powered by Zach Hyman, but go on. <laughs> and the the dream for the Leafs is, like, okay, imagine if we have that, but, like, just another one of them, right? And yeah. that's what that Matthews-Neenander combination can be. Right, it can absolutely produce that same level of dominance, and I'm hoping we see that. At, you know, Matthews had a bit of a tough time at five v five to start the year, relative to expectations of him as being a number one center and an elite player in the league. But you know, the hope is with Neander there, that can be a 54, 55 percent expected goals team, yeah, or expected goals group, right? And then it becomes super hard to match up with the Leafs because, like, you know, two thirds of the game you're going to have to face that and then oh here's our break Nazem Kadri and Kasperi Kapanen are coming over the board yeah have fun with that so yeah I am still feeling a bit of that excitement that I felt when I first thought of us having this team with John Tavares in it it's amazing in July I actually went back I did the most egotistical thing possible I listened to an old podcast of mine (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was ta- I was taking like a thirty minute subway drive and I was like or subway ride and oh. like oh this- it- it's U S Thanksgiving right so most of the podcasts I listened to weren't getting updated mm-hmm. so I'm like you know what I'm just gonna listen to myself from three <laughs> months ago and I listened to the post Tavares um, podcast and we were like oh man it's gonna be so amazing to see this happen that that was like what July fourth or something July fifth and it's been what like si- oh, f- almost five months from now maybe. Yeah, actually, five months from then. And we haven't seen that yet. I know. We have waited so long. And it's solved a little bit by Tavares being as good as we could have hoped. And the yeah. Leafs, you know, winning twice as many games as they've lost. But, damn. Like, <laughs> the prospect of finally seeing it is, like, uh, almost overwhelming to think about how good this team could be if it finally gets to full strength. Yeah. All right, so on that note, uh, that's everything from us. Thank you for listening. You can find all of mine and Fuleman's stuff on pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and at ATFuleman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.